It's nearly 30 years ago that I was studying with the C.S. Lewis Foundation in Oxford, and we were quartered at St. Hilda's College. And most of our meals for that entire conference were taken in college. And at many of those meals, one of the trustees, a wonderful British fellow with the name of Nigel, would read or recite poetry. He was also an actor, so he gave a rather distinct British flavor to what was read. Many of the pieces were by a contemporary Christian poet named Stephen Turner. And some of those poems that were chosen tweaked our very comfortable selves as they compelled us to see the contemporary culture in a new light with the gospel as our guide. Everything was going wonderfully until one evening some of the college dons, those are the fancy words for English professors, decided to join us at dinner. They sit at the high table, reserved only for them, just in case they happen to show up. Upset, annoyed, angered, peeve, you pick your own word, at the applause and the laughter in the midst of an august meal, that often accompanied a particular recitation of a poem, one of the dons rose up, struck her glass with a knife to get our attention, and then announced, it just isn't done, you know, it just won't do. Poetry and theology in the public square had been silenced for the remainder of the fortnight. Now, the reason I begin with this anecdote is there are quite a lot of things that just aren't done these days, that just won't do, most of them having to do with Jesus. Some of them too revolutionary in polite company, some too irregular at a college dinner where all the necessary proprieties must be observed, others too politically threatening, whether in our day or in ancient Jerusalem. Keep crucified, would-be messiahs dead and buried. Keep any publication of good news about the resurrection of a certain 33-year-old Jewish preacher in the middle of time. Well, silence that as well. Resurrection just isn't done. It just won't do. Not then, not now, 
not ever. However, as we heard read this morning, Peter will not be silenced. And he confesses before the rulers and elders in Jerusalem that God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah, that they need to be saved from their corrupt generation. Peter's refusal to be silenced adds about 3,000 persons to this exploding community of new Christians. And as Stephen Turner, the poet I referred to just a moment ago, as Stephen Turner points out so tellingly in his poem, If Jesus Was Born Today, the culture, the academy, the media have attempted to end it all now and then. They've had their fill of Billy Graham crusades, of contemporary Peters who call us to repent, of cognitive dissonance masquerading as truth. Any of you know what cognitive dissonance is? Oh, good. I didn't either. I had to be told. It's a kind of pseudo-medical, pseudo-scientific term that suggests that the disciples were so overwhelmed with disappointment at Jesus' crucifixion that they went on believing what they had believed anyway. But we all know better, it really didn't happen. That's cognitive dissonance. Real resurrection just won't do. At their most generous, the academy, the media, have suggested that our Lord's teachings are immortal, as immortal as Shakespeare's plays, Mozart's music, or the spirit of Jesus will not be quenched as his lessons live on. At their worst, they've taken this heretic, fundamentalist, literalist Jesus and quietly ended the argument. But, and it's a magisterial but, the argument would rumble in the ground and would break out and walk around and invite touching and explain the scriptures and break bread with friends while Thomas and all his subsequent namesakes would stand around amused and ask for something called proof. My friends, Easter is merely 15 days old. Only five more weeks until Pentecost. Now, 
want to ask you a question. How many of you, since Easter Day, have been wished a blessed Easter? Been greeted by someone with, Alleluia, Christ is risen. Been approached on the street by someone eager to share with you the awesome good news of the risen God in Jesus Christ who is setting in motion his new creation, all appearances to the contrary. It just isn't done, you know. Just won't do. Now, as I sat alone in this church at 5 a.m. on Good Friday morning, I thought and prayed a lot about some important things, about how easy it would have been to turn off the alarm, roll over, and go back to sleep about how often, early on in my life, I refused to watch one hour. About how easy it is for me to ignore the Jesus who meets me on my own road to Emmaus. about how casually I can reach into my wallet on Easter Day, take out a few singles for the collection plate, mumble some platitudes to Whitney on the way out the door, and think to myself, well, thank goodness that's over, at least until Christmas. about how easy it is for me to model my life on my own version of Jesus as used by or as seen by a friend of mine, a British poet named Stuart Henderson, in his ironic poem, Splintered Messiah. Stuart suggests that if we must have a Jesus at all, Better that he be streamlined and inoffensive. A package tour Messiah, not a Messiah who takes us to Golgotha, but a safe Messiah. A king of kings with blow waves in his hair. And the reason it just isn't done, you know, is because the skeptical worldview and all the Thomases who advocate it or attach themselves to it have been blown away by Jesus' resurrection. I recall last week's low Sunday. I read and attend to this morning's gospel. I look at the cartoon in your bulletin. Ascension deficit disorder, resurrection deficit 
disorder, incarnation deficit disorder. And I think to myself, in light of my own journey into Christ, you know, John, Jesus can be a darn inconvenient truth. And so can all the events of his life. His life, his death, his life after life after death. The resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is an inconvenient truth. Inconvenient not just for the alternative worldviews on the market and now in fashion in the university. Inconvenient for the power brokers now in Washington as well as for the ones who wish they were in Washington. Inconvenient for the totalitarians of Russia, Turkey, Syria, and elsewhere. Perhaps even inconvenient for people in church on a Sunday morning. People like you. Like me. Let me explain. Many of you are very much well aware of how much I read. And two months ago, I read and reread immediately Bishop Tom Wright's latest book, The Day the Revolution Began, Reconsidering the Meaning of Jesus' uh, Crucifixion. Now, I will read anything by Tom Wright. He's been a mentor to me for years. He is a sure and certain guy, one of the foremost theologians and biblical scholars, and for thanking God, he's an Anglican. I could even be called a Tom Wright groupie. I've traveled to Charleston, South Carolina to hear him speak at an Anglicanism conference. However, this latest book had a disturbing effect on me. I didn't really think that I, a priest of 35 years, who believed in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, really needed to reconsider its meaning. Then, three pages into his book, I read this sentence. Jesus died, not in order to make us rescued non-entities, but restored human beings. Well, I don't have any problem with that. And then I read on. With a vocation to play a vital part in God's purposes for the world. That word vital in the text was in italics. So, young people here, I urge you, when you're reading anything, older people too, never read without a highlighter and a red pen. Okay? My wife will not read anything I've read because she reads and then she has to go and look in the margin to see what I wrote here and why she didn't think that was important. Anyway, I read on and came to this. Jesus died for our sins, 
not so that we could sort out abstract ideas, but so that we, having been put right, could become part of God's plan to put his whole world right. In other words, you and I, makes no difference how old we were, and I'm 75, were to exercise an active role in the establishment of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We were to be shepherds who fed sheep, sowers who planted the seed that would yield 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Most definitely, you and I were not to be passive, pew-filling, pedestrian, twice-a-year, Christmas and Easter egg, resurrection deficit disorder, churchgoers. As I prayed in the church that morning, as I read this gospel this morning, and as I looked at the cartoons that were in your bulletin and considered the implications of my own deficit disorders, I began to see anew that one just can't fit Jesus into other existing worldviews. Friends, one must either reject the cross and resurrection as the terrified disciples were prone to do at first or permit those events to shape one's life. Be slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared or open my eyes and confess with Thomas as we heard last Sunday in the gospel, my Lord and my God. As Bishop Wright notes, you and I cannot capture the cross. To be a Christian means, among other things, that it has captured you and me. Tom Wright was nudging me. Actually, it was more than a nudge, even more than a poke. It was a downright, unwelcome shove just in case I wasn't being attentive beyond the book with my pen, my highlighter, a cup of tea, leaning back and enjoying it. It was as if Tom was saying to me, you know something, John? It's not just a matter of working up a sermon now and then when you supply around the diocese or come back to Ridgefield to help Whitney out. It's not just a matter of visiting regularly your long, sick friend in the nursing home, bringing him communion on Sundays. And it's not just a matter of confessing unashamedly that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. It's all that and more. And as I'm continuing to discover, that more arises out of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That more is what Wright defines as a covenant 
of vocation. The vocation of you and I being a genuine human being with genuine human tasks to perform as part of the Creator's purposes for this world. Jesus says to each of us this morning, hopefully you'll chat about it over pancakes after the service, feed my sheep, be a light to the world, scatter the seed that produces abundantly. Don't try to make the tomb secure as you can. Instead, Go out and tell the people about how God is coming to you. Let me close. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and your and my living in those events as a present reality lead to the restoration of harmony in what will become at the end God's new heaven and new earth. I don't know if any of you know the name Lucy Beckett. Just been introduced to her as a writer. She wrote a rather wonderful book, rather thick, 500 plus pages, called A Postcard from the Volcano. It's a book about pre-World War II Germany. And she has one of her characters in that book, a member of a group who get together to play music with the, uh, for each other, Mozart, Beethoven, string quartets. She, one of the characters says, for every 10 who can play the notes, only one can play the music. Don't let some academic curmudgeon or some doubting Thomas skeptic say to you, the cross and resurrection just won't do, you know they just won't do. Instead, embrace your vocation and reshape it in light of the crucified and risen Lord. Instead, sing the music and enter the song. Hail thee, festival day, blessed day that art hallowed forever, day whereon Christ arose, breaking the kingdom of death. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.